Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery, BTR.org. This is Anne. I'm sure you remember what it was like when you didn't understand what was going on in your marriage, when you were searching for help, maybe for your husband, thinking if you found the right program or therapist, it could help him. When I realized what was really happening, I couldn't believe I'd supported my husband through seven years of pornography addiction recovery and not one therapist during that time told me I was experiencing emotional and psychological abuse and sexual coercion. Like, how does that happen? Why is it that we go for help, but instead we just get dismissed over and over and over by therapists, by clergy, by other professionals? Why doesn't anyone understand this type of abuse? That's why I started podcasting. I didn't want any other woman on the planet to be in the dark about what was really happening to her. If you feel the same way, one simple way to help spread the word, an anonymous way, is to go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app, find the btr.org podcast, and click on follow or subscribe. Just pushing one little button on your favorite podcasting app will bump this podcast up in the algorithm. By anonymously pushing that button, you could be the miracle some other woman out there needs. Because there are so many women praying for answers and they don't know where to look. While you're there, a five-star rating helps too and can save other women from getting the wrong kind of help, like a couple program, that'll make this type of abuse worse. If you've already purchased a copy of my book, Trauma Mama Husband Drama, available on Amazon, thank you please circle back and give it a five-star rating because same thing goes there. A lot of women search for books about betrayal trauma on Amazon and rating Trauma Mama there will help them find this podcast, which is free to everyone. If you're new to the podcast, consider starting with the oldest episodes first and then work your way forward chronologically. If you do that, you'll hear a change in my voice as I grow in my confidence and skills. If you're like the majority of my listeners, you're experiencing the type of abuse that's invisible and difficult to wrap your head around. Your husband is using porn or having affairs or lying to you or all of the above, and no one understands exactly how to help you. We do. If you're wondering where to start, go to btr.org steps to see your next three steps. And check out our daily group session schedule at btr.org. We'd love to see you in a group session today. We have Dr. Jessica Taylor back on today's episode. Again, this one is absolutely related to what happened to Leah, an ongoing custody battle. Again, this was recorded before Ohm's death. Sorry, I keep bringing that up, but it just happened this week for me. I know that this is going to air like much after that, but it it was just very eerie. So if you did not listen to last week's episode, listen to that first and then join us here. I would say the most common that we see here at BTR is through the pornography addiction recovery industrial complex, which is what I call it. They're found out for their porn use, for example, or their affairs or soliciting prostitutes, you know, sex addiction therapy. And then they start telling people, yes, I am a sex addict and I'm getting treatment, but now I'm just concerned about my wife. She also needs to get help because she's experienced this traumatic event in finding out that I'm an addict and needs help. And everybody's like, oh yeah, she needs to work on her side of the street. She needs to go to Essanon or COSA or, you know, because she's codependent or something like that. And then she has to go to quote unquote treatment too for his sex addiction. In the meantime, she's being literally emotionally and psychologically abused 
trying to quote unquote care for her husband who is sick, apparently. I'm using quotes for sick too, because he's got this sad addiction. And she is not in any way, shape, or form seen as a victim of sexual abuse. Like she's not been able to give consent for her sexual relationship because she didn't even know any of this was going on. She wasn't able to process any of it. She's been lied to, deceived, emotionally and psychologically abused the whole time. It is really bad. And she's getting that from the sex addiction therapist. She's getting it from maybe marriage and family therapist. And she also might be getting it from clergy. And so it just gets super, super hard to see what's going on when you have what feels like all these professionals and people who seem to care about you trying to hold your family together kind of in you're the glue because you're sort of kind of healthy in this situation, but you're almost as sick as he is and he's not bad. He's just sick. It kind of reminds me of that section in um, The Maid, the Netflix show The Maid, when the dad is just trying to say like he's not the enemy, the alcohol is the enemy. Do you remember that part? I haven't seen that, but that makes a lot of sense. It feels very familiar. It's the type of thing that you hear a lot. And I wonder if it's, you know, the examples, the example that you just sort of gave was, I think that's just another way that we force women to take responsibility for men's actions and for men's abuse. It's, you know, it's like a way of roping her back in and being like, you're a problem as well. And you need to work on this stuff too. And it's like, at what point, are women allowed to go, do you know what? No, absolutely not. I'm not working on anything. This isn't my problem. These weren't my actions. These aren't my choices. I'm not getting involved. He needs to deal with his own problems. He needs to take full accountability, which means not spreading that accountability to me. Yes. Also, this man is currently right now psychologically and emotionally unsafe. I need to distance myself from this because his continued gaslighting, his continued lying about me, his continued deceit, his continued manipulation, even if it sounds nice, is emotionally and psychologically violent to me. It is harming me. I am currently in an unsafe situation. Some of the pornography addiction recovery therapists, for example, will require that a woman not consider divorce for a year until he's been in treatment rather than saying, okay, you're currently unsafe. Let's get you to safety. I'm not saying that necessarily means divorce per se, because also divorce does not solve the problem if you share kids, because if you share kids, he can continue to emotionally and psychologically abuse you even post-divorce. So I'm talking actual emotional and psychological safety from the very beginning. And, and I don't know what that means. I don't know if it means divorce or not. I'm not saying that, but I do think a lot of abuse professionals think that divorce, oh, we just got to get her out of there. And I'm like, well, that also doesn't solve the problem. I was severely emotionally and psychologically abused post-divorce for eight years because I share kids with my abuser and all the women listening. That's why they're afraid of getting divorced too. That's because they think, well, maybe I'll actually be safer. And I can manage it a little bit better if I remain married, but then try to set up boundaries in marriage. Maybe I can make sure that my kids won't have to go every other weekend. My kids will be safer, you know, those sorts of things. So women have to make these strategic decisions about what is going to give them the most emotional and psychological safety. But it's really tricky when other people and professionals, the court system doesn't understand it. Luckily, the UK is way better 
than America in understanding coercive control. So that's good news for you guys. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think so. I've got quite a lot of colleagues in the US and we have many conversations that go along that route until I sort of explain what it's actually like here. And they're like, oh, I see. Because a lot of it's lip service, you know, it's sort of like, don't get me wrong, the, the almost the academic understanding is there. So we, we have a definition of coercive control. It's included in law. It's accepted as a as a thing that exists, you know. So in that way, yes, I accept that we've made progress there. But when you actually attempt to demonstrate or prove coercive control or you need to help a woman who is very clearly being coerced and is in a very psychological and emotional abusive relationship with somebody, you will get the same sort of dismissal, not believing her, pushback, you know, reframing her as the problem, making her take responsibility, telling her that they, you know, you need to get therapy together. I don't know. I think we, we've done similar recently in the UK around misogyny, where the, some of the police forces are saying, oh, we should be able to charge these men with misogynistic crime. Oh, like kind of like a hate crime? Yes, yes, exactly. So it's misogynistic hate crime. So that would include coercive control, domestic abuse. So essentially they can say that it's aggravated by the misogyny and then it makes the sentence heavier. It makes the system almost work better but the, the problem with that is that it's all that all sounds brilliant but it just doesn't work in real life because the majority of you know these professionals whether they're working in the family court or whether they're in police or whether they're social workers or whoever they are they still couldn't even define misogyny most of them can't spell it you know they don't really know what any of it is they don't know what it looks like um they're misogynistic themselves and also and i always make a point of saying this that statistically these professionals that are working in these environments are just as likely to be being abused. So especially the women, they're going home to an abuser at the same rate as the general public. All of the research suggests that professionals in these roles are just as likely to be being abused as their clients. And that means that the men in those roles are just as likely to be perpetrators as men in the general population. So this means that they have their own biases, their own experiences, their own issues, their own sort of conclusions, their own self-blame that they then put on women, you know, who are trying to get help. Right now, I have a friend who her soon-to-be ex has a protective order and her victim advocate is saying, you need to report these additional crimes that he's committed. She's trying to get divorced from him and her family court attorney is saying no 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 do not report it because then you'll look bad and it will affect your divorce negatively she's getting different advice from two law professionals and the the two judges who work for the same county <laughs> are going to view her domestic abuse completely differently even though they work for the same county and they're both supposed to be on the side of justice yeah, this happens in the UK as well. I mean, the way you've just described that, if somebody outside of our field of work listens to that, they'd be like, that's absolutely ridiculous. That's because it is. But that is, is what we're seeing here too. So it's this sort of like, don't bring up the abuse, don't report the abuse when you're going through, you know, the divorce or the custody type hearings or child contact hearings, because it'll make you look bad. It makes you look like you're accusing him and it's going to make everything harder. But you have a right to report that stuff to keep you safe. And, you know, if you wanted to, and it's, it's appalling that you have to almost 
play a game, you know, to try and keep you and the kids as safe as possible, which might actually mean that you can't even report what you have a right to report. It's it's just wild. And like you say, it, these are judges sitting in the same areas, in the same courts, supposed to be working towards the same aim, which is justice and safety and protection. It's impossible. It's impossible to do this. Well, so many women are terrified of going through, as you say, going through the divorce process, going through a custody process, going through any kind of family assessment type process. Because on top of that, they know full well that their ex or their partner is going to be able to successfully manipulate every professional in that case. We're going to take a break for just a minute to talk about all this so-called betrayal trauma therapists or coaches or groups out there that don't approach pornography use or infidelity as an abuse issue, or they try to quote unquote treat both the perpetrator and the victim in the same setting, which is absolutely unethical. So if you hear something in this episode that you relate to, check out the group session schedule at btr.org. We'd love to see you in a group session today. Now back to our conversation. My personal opinion, and I don't know how you feel from your professional point of view, is that these types of abusers do not respect civil divorce decrees. They just kind of do whatever they want because there is no enforcement or not very good enforcement. So if they don't do something that's in the civil parenting plan, for example, then it's very difficult to enforce it. Whereas a protective order or some other criminal type things are easier to enforce. So my personal opinion currently, this could change, is report, go with what the criminal people say rather than the divorce people, because the criminal prosecution and criminal action could actually have a consequence that could keep you safer than your divorce decree. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, that's kind of, I'm, I'm like, that's my current way of thinking about it. But I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? That's so interesting. I would be like inclined to sort of on paper to sort of agree with what you've just said. But I also accept how tentative and you're sort of being about it. because, And and I get that totally. Because in the UK, for example, if you do lots and lots of women going through this, where they keep trying to tell the truth in, in their, you know, divorce hearings, in their child contact hearings and things like that. And then what happens is that the whole thing gets flipped over on them and they're the abuser and they're fabricating it and they get accused of parental alienation. They get accused of fabricating abuse and things like that. And then suddenly those women are like, oh my God, it's me on trial now. And I, I did not expect this to happen. I've worked with women around the world. I worked with a woman a couple of years ago in Australia who went through exactly this experience. And then all of a sudden she realized this case had been turned upside down and suddenly it was her on trial, not him. And then they 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 decided to remove her, completely remove her access to her daughter and said that she was an unsafe mom and that she was lying about this coercive control, lying about the abuse. And that by continually talking about it and bringing it up and trying to report it, she was actually going to harm the little girl and all this sort of rubbish. She was taken away from her. She was. She was removed completely and she had no access to her whatsoever. And uh, they were refusing to give her even contact and access because she was saying she was so harmful. I'll tell you this story just because it has a really good ending, thankfully. 
because I remember working with her and the child, the little girl was removed just before Christmas. And I honestly thought that that woman was going to end her life. She, t- she texted me several times and was like, I can't do this. I'm not living without her. This, I don't know how this went so wrong. I, I just wanted to divorce him. I, I would have been happy with shared contact. I don't know how the hell this happened. And it just changed her life. And he did all of this out of control and spite. He had no interest in being a full-time parent to that little girl. Not a chance. He was a businessman. He was out and about all the time. He was always traveling. He had absolutely no interest in that child. He did it purely to harm his ex-wife. And within a few months, that child had been palmed off to childcare, to nannies, nurseries, schools, after-school clubs, that kid never saw her dad and it was only after a few months of the school sort of just every now and then reporting being like she's not getting picked up she's not being looked after she she's not looking well she's ill and then he you know he moved her out of area and nobody knew where this child had gone and I was so absolutely just gobsmacked blown away that something happened I don't know exactly how it happened she got a good lawyer, uh, the woman got a good lawyer, and they managed to actually get that child back and fully removed from the man. That happened in 2020, so the little girl is now, like, eight, and they're doing really well, and they're super happy, and, like... But, like, the the horror that that woman has been put through... Well, and the child, right? The the woman and her child, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, the little girl, and, and I know that... It took ages for the little girl to sort of recover from all of that trauma. And I I remember speaking to the woman a few times and she was like, she's just not the same anymore. I was like, you have to give her time. You're going to have to just be there and just give her time because she's just been through just life changing. And she, I remember her saying to me, do you think she'll grow up and remember this? And I said, yes, likely. It's likely at that age, she will have memories of all of this. And she was saying, oh, I, I hoped that, she wouldn't have any and she's young enough not to have any memories i know she i think she will at that age i'm reminded of another story of a woman who um was had a very young child like within a year and she was not uh, married to the man and she actually crossed from canada into the u.s to get away from him and then he fought her and fought her and fought her you know she kidnapped the kid and all this stuff and was in court just the whole time and she was terrified so she stayed in America tried to fight it in court um the stress of it maybe maybe not I don't know but she ended up having brain cancer and dying and the second that she passed away he stopped all the court stuff and didn't want to see the daughter oh my god that's horrific yeah so she basically, for the, I think it was until her daughter was 11, maybe, was in court just with this awful, awful court case. The daughter would have to go and be with him in Canada for him. I mean, it was so bad. And the second that she passed away, he was like, oh, never mind. I don't want to see my daughter. Her husband, the, the woman's husband, who was a really good man and was trying to help her, you know, figure it out. Um, he is now the full-time dad. She calls him dad and he's the one who takes care of her, but they've never even wanted to file for adoption or anything because they're just too afraid that I think he is her legal guardian, but they're too afraid that he'll say no 
And he probably will. He'll probably would say no, just purely out of control. It's interesting, though, because he works pretty well with the husband now that she died. He's like, oh, yeah, no problem. Yeah, he signed the stuff for the legal guardianship and stuff. He just doesn't want to do the official adoption. Is that misogyny? Is it like, or is it that he feels like he won in the end and she died? and Because he killed her. Yeah. And oh, God, that's an awful case. And like women are just going through so much. It's, and the system is failing them left, right and center. Exactly. And that's not to say had she wouldn't have died. You know, we don't know what would have happened with her cancer, but it was just very interesting to see that this, that when she did die, he was like, oh, never mind. We don't have to do the court case anymore. I, she doesn't have to come live with me. Yeah, because you would think if that's what he really wanted, that as soon as she died, he would be like, right, now I get full custody of my kid that I've been fighting for for 11 years. He would be on the plane. Yeah. That day. Like, if that were me, I'd be on the plane. Like, oh, this thing I've been praying for has happened. Oh, we're finally reunited. I'm so grateful to have you. Even when she would go, when she had to go back up to Canada to be with him, he didn't really pay attention to her, or you know, and she knew it and she she didn't like it. But it's interesting that that was... That wasn't at all what happened. And they act that way. And so they can win the cases. But just like the man you described, you know, they're not getting picked up. They're not really taking care of them. They don't really care. They just want to win. Oh, absolutely. It really is just a big power game. And, you know, that it speaks to what is at the core of emotional, psychological abuse and of sexual coercion. It's all about power. It's all about control. It's all about breaking you down and and being able to control you in in the way that they want to so it makes sense that if that is the way they think and the way they behave and what they get out of that then they are going to continue that whichever way they can and like as you say for those of us with children with perpetrators um which includes me it's very very difficult you know you realize you are you are attached to these perpetrators for I mean in some cases the rest of your life because you know you've got kids with them and like in in a good scenario just until your kids are like 18 20 years old or whatever and that you can completely cut off but in reality you never really can completely escape those perpetrators you're attached to them for a very long time and they're perpetrators they're going to find ways of harming you over the years even as those decades pass and you can understand, you know, the amount of trauma that that causes for women who are attached to these perpetrators with children. It's years and years and years of like trying to keep yourself psychologically safe, trying to keep yourself emotionally healthy, trying to move on, trying to process everything that happened when you were together and the the horrible, you know, post-divorce mess that lots of us have gone through. And then years down the line, you know, there's still things that crop up. There's still things that they might stick their oar in or be difficult about. I mean, just examples like getting a passport for your child so you can go on holiday or like, I don't know, the fact that your kid needs somewhere to stay for a bit or they want to go to a different college or university or, you know, there's so many things. Or they might have a health problem and like you're both, you know, required to help them. I don't know. It could be anything. But they will just find a way of manipulating that situation so that they can play their power game all over again. 
We're going to pause the conversation here today. So stay tuned because Dr. Jessica Taylor and I are going to continue our conversation next week. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please help me reach other women by pushing that follow or subscribe button on your podcasting app of choice and giving us a five-star rating. Just pushing that little button will help other women find us. Also, your donations keep this podcast going. Go to our website, btr.org, scroll to the bottom, click on support the BTR podcast and donate today. And until next week, stay safe out there.